Hi everyone, welcome back to the Eurospeak podcast, where we talk about various things European and how they impact our lives even if we're not actually in Europe. As always, this is BJ and Verga. At the time that this episode is being recorded, it's been over six months since the world has been gripped by the coronavirus pandemic. Thus far, the virus has claimed the lives of several hundred thousand individuals around the world and brought the global economy to a standstill. The World Health Organization has referred to it as a once-in-a-century health crisis. In the 14th century, Europe experienced its own once-in-a-century pandemic in the form of the Black Death. On today's episode, we're turning our scanning electron microscopes on history to examine similarities between the ways that medieval societies dealt with their pandemic and the techniques that we use to deal with ours. Joining me in our exploration of public health in the past and in the present is Edri, a public health physician and a pathology resident. He'll be sharing his medical knowledge with us on this episode. Welcome, Edri. Hello. So, Edri, before we get into the details of the Black Death, did you have any thoughts about us making comparisons between the two events? I mean, both the bubonic plague and the coronavirus have ravaged territories in Europe. They're also said to have their origins in Asia. Is there anything else we should know before we get into it? They're caused by two very different organisms. The Black Plague is caused by bacteria. COVID-19 is caused by a virus. I see. And do you think we're making a fair comparison here? In a lot of ways, yes. Because yesterday, I mentioned just before this started, I had a lecture to a bunch of people in the insurance and finance sectors regarding how Plagues and pandemics in general are disruptors that set off various social changes, various technological advances at the cost of people's lives, of course. I see. You're right, right. And that is a fair assessment. So moving on, I suppose by way of definitions, perhaps we can start with some background information. Could you start us off with the uninitiated person's guide to the coronavirus? When did we first detect it, symptoms to look out for, tips to avoiding it, that kind of thing. I realize that's a really complicated question, but is there an abridged version of all that? I mean, you can lecture on this for hours on end, but could we get the elevator pitch? So COVID-19 is caused by a virus from the family or the group known as the coronaviruses. The coronaviruses are basically one of the two viruses that are known to cause the common colds. That's why it's so insidious, okay? Because what we normally would treat as something that, you know, naturally goes away has now basically become uh, the main reason why our life has been disrupted this year and making it the worst year for everyone so far, yeah. And there is also the you know, how people are being disingenuous there about how it's just like the flu. But the problem is this virus has its own, what we call relatively high basic reproduction rate. Basically, one infected person on average will pass it on to two other people mm. just by coughing or, you know, just by breathing, okay? There's enough evidence already to conclude for a lot of doctors that COVID-19 or the severe acute respiratory syndrome, coronavirus 19, stays in the air and can propagate airborne, which is different from, say, 
other diseases you pass on to other people by coughing, such as you know your bacterial respiratory infections, because these things can't live outside of the body for long. Whereas right. apparently SARS-CoV-2, I'll call it SARS-CoV-2, that's the name of the pathogen, it can get suspended in the air and be inhaled by people. And that's why it's very important to wear protection to ensure you don't inhale those particles that can get suspended in the air. All right. Well, that those sound like really wise words. Thank you for that. I'm sure our audience will appreciate that advice. So moving to the Black Death, based on my research, the Black Death is sometimes referred to as a plague. Can we refer to the coronavirus or COVID-19 as a plague? Or is the term only reserved for things that predate modern medicine, like the plagues that are referenced in the Bible? Well, in layman's terms, plague with a lowercase p is basically any infection or anything that bothers and stays and uh, chronically makes someone suffer. Okay, so that's your lowercase p plague. But when we have the capital or the uppercase P plague, it's almost always specific for what we call the bubonic plague. Oh, okay, okay. So we can call COVID-19 a plague, but only the small letter P plague. Lowercase plague. Okay, so we can. That makes it sound scarier, I think, the COVID-19 plague. I think people will take it more seriously if we called it that. So I suppose we can proceed. I did a little bit of reading on the Black Death, and I think I'll need your medical expertise to correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, Apparently, the plague is spread by a bacterium, which I cannot pronounce. Yersinia pestis, is this right? Yersinia pestis, yes. Oh, cool. All right. So semi-okay. It exists in fleas. Is that also right? Yes. Rat fleas or rodent fleas, to be specific. Okay. And the pathogen responsible for the Black Death is said to have existed in Europe as early as 3000 BCE. And the thing is, I read that and was wondering how it's possible that people didn't become immune if it was around for so long. Immunity implies that there are people or a required number of people surviving the disease and surviving enough that the genes which somehow allowed them to resist not being killed by the plague, the uppercase P plague or the bubonic plague, to be able to pass it on to their offspring. As it is, basically, the pneumonic form is when instead of being passed on by fleas, it's now your cough and your, your colds and your sneezing can now bring about the pathogen or the bacteria to other people instead of just the fleas itself. So it's pneumonic. So it's right. from the air. So basically, if you get it, it was almost a sure death back in the day. Right. That, that sounds really scary, actually. I'm really liking all the information I'm learning on this episode, and I hope our audience does too. So, Edri, is there anything else you think we need to know? I'd mm-hmm. like to inform everyone that the plague never really went away. Ah. Okay. It's still here. In fact, it's considered endemic in some of the southeastern parts of the United States. And our neighbor, Vietnam, had cases as recently as last year, I believe. Wow, of the bubonic plague. Yes. Does, does it actually kill people, though? It kills people, but if your doctors are well-trained or if they're, they're highly competent, they can have the clinical suspicion. The, the thing about the uppercase P plague is that it can be treated with antibiotics. And oh. the good news is 
your Sinia pestis doesn't show resistance or doesn't develop antimicrobial resistance, unlike your other common bacterial infections, such as your tuberculosis or even your normal streptococcal or staphylococcal infections, which cause your run-of-the-mill pneumonia. I see. Awesome. So now let's get into the origins of the Black Death. October 1347 was a key date in this because that's when 12 ships from the Black Sea arrived at the Sicilian port city of Messina. And those that were still alive were gravely ill and covered in black boils that oozed blood and pus. This sounds like a really gruesome version of trick-or-treat, though I imagine that tradition didn't exist yet back then. Do these symptoms sound about right, Edri? Yes, yes, they do. The reason why it's called the bubonic plague is because of buboes or masses, or basically your lymph nodes get so enlarged and inflamed that they start dying because they're, you know, they're so highly inflamed that the blood supply gets cut off. According to my notes here, it blocks your lymph nodes and they they become necrotic or they start dying off. And in, in some ways, when they become enlarged, they can also compromise the blood supply to parts of the body. Those parts of the body start falling off too. And in fact, right. this story that you're telling me reminds me, and I think you may have also read about it too. In Italy, there was a time when the plague got so bad. You know how zombie apocalypse movies? Yeah. Yeah, that's where people got the imagery from. Because parts of the body were already falling off. The mucous membranes were Mm -hmm. dried out. Your fingers and your extremities and your digits had blackened out. and They were rotting already. Wow. But they didn't eat brains. No, they didn't. But yeah, (laughs) it was really... I mean, the story you just told me about how the those ships came back and uh, the sailors were mostly dead and those that were alive were gravely ill yeah well, that sounds like a george romero movie to me. <laughs> actually yeah that that sounds yes. like a really good beginning for a movie honestly yes, yes. <laughs> all right well a little bit more on those ships so following the arrival of the so-called death ships the virus quickly spread throughout sicily and onward to the italian peninsula Now, like the coronavirus, animals were said to have been involved in the disease. Popular opinion at the time said it was rats that transmitted the disease, but apparently, later research shows that this was not the case. Is this... can you confirm this, Edri? Yes. The bacteria is actually transmitted by rat fleas. They didn't notice this. You know, you can't fault the people during those times to Mm -hmm. associate it with rats. In fact, that was actually pretty brilliant that they noticed that with the rats came the plague. Mm-hmm. But they had no concept. They, remember, this was a time when they considered the body to be made up of four humors. Okay? Yes. Four different types of humors. And they thought that the rats gave an imbalance of those humors. Yes, the origins of your profession. <laughs> yes, but, but it was the fleas that were feasting on the blood of those rats that actually mm. brought the plague. Okay, so they were close, but they blamed the wrong animal. Yeah, so the poor rats got blamed, apparently, just because they happened to be near the corpses that had succumbed to the bubonic plague. What about the coronavirus, though? Do we know anything about animals in the coronavirus? Well, as far as animals go, the coronavirus is considered a zoonotic infection. So what zoonotic means is basically any disease that usually starts off from one animal that gets passed on to to humans. Okay. Okay. 
as far as COVID-19 though, oh, the initial reports, the suspicion that it was bats may be possible. That's the current consensus. The pangolins, not so much. I've been reading on the articles that they're now trying to trace. They're mostly citing bats now. Okay, I'm I'm really glad that you you did the research that's useful for this. Yes. <laughs> okay, well, it's kind of unfortunate for those animals. They got some really bad reputations. I don't know. Do you think that these animals are being treated unfairly? What do you think, Edri? For the Middle Ages, uh, rats. Uh, I don't know. Rats are a vector for other diseases. I mean, back in the day when I was a medical student, the wards in the government hospital where I was trained didn't suddenly stop becoming, you know, wards for various sorts of diseases. They just became a ward dedicated to leptospirosis, which is an infectious disease that you can get from rat urine. Yeah, from rats. Oh, these yes. poor rats. Um, yes. <laughs> yeah, well... It turns out that it's not only the animals that got a bad reputation, minorities were also blamed for the spread of the disease. I mean, it was the Middle Ages. They actually went after the Jews who, who ended Marco up... Polo's, Marco right. Polo's fan fiction of going to China. <laughs> Indeed. Unfortunately, this, was, this was the same period, right? It was, it was. You're right. Yeah. It's the same period. And unfortunately for many Jews who lived at that time, they were slaughtered because there was a belief that they were associated with the virus for some reason. Any thoughts on maybe associating that kind of anti-Semitic, ethnocentric view with Asians at present with COVID-19? I'm going to say here that you notice the, the rise of right-wing groups in the world right now. Mm-hmm. Europe, in the United States, all of these far-right movements and all of them can be traced back to Germany in 1933. And then you can trace all of these anti-quote-unquote Zionist, anti-Jew bigotry and sentiments. They always use that discourse about minorities bringing about diseases. Mm. And even in graphic novels that are meant to remember the Holocaust, such as I forgot who wrote it, Art Spiegelman, where Adolf Hitler is likened to a cat and the Jews are likened to mice, okay? Your your ordinary pest mice. And even the Nazis themselves used disease, associated them with the Jews and associated the Jews with rats, basically, in their propaganda. So it's not surprising. Right. And the rat connection continues, apparently. (laughs) Yes. um, And... Here's the thing, you know how some countries basically are very strict about the entry of certain nationalities or even the certain pets? A lot Mm -hmm. of it could actually be, they're actually rooted in these same bigotries. Mm, Right. Uh, I'm not going to mention those countries because I plan (laughs) on visiting them sometime in the future (laughs) once this is over. Right. I mean, we all want to visit some certain countries in the future once this is all over. Uh, in yes. the meantime, unfortunately, we, we are stuck in, in our homes. homes and, yes. But then again, we also have the opportunity to talk about this. So in both cases, in co- with regard to COVID-19 and, and the Black Death, 
there's the look to the east, east in quotation marks, as the source of the disease. I suppose this this ties in with what you just said, right? Yeah. Yes. And remember, you know how you were asking about immunity? Why people haven't built themselves immunity towards these things? Yeah. Well, the thing is, a lot of the viruses, a lot of the pathogens that are, say, endemic in one area, the people there over time develop their own immunity say such mm. as smallpox or even measles which can be can be quite deadly in yeah. and of, of itself right yeah and you have your uncontacted cultures or your unco- uh, the societies that haven't made contact with the mm-hmm. rest of the world you're you're bound to unleash the diseases that you're immune to on those same cultures so they look to the East, they look to Asia as the source of these diseases, but consider how it looks to the Mayans and to the Native Americans when the Europeans arrived in their countries and that basically, yeah, um, killed thousands of them with the smallpox. Yeah, true, true. Should do another episode on that. Um, yes. <laughs> indeed. So having discussed the roots of the virus, or at least their perceived origins, let's now move to how governments and societies dealt with their respective pandemics. We often think of the medieval period when the Black Death occurred as a time of complete ignorance of science and over-reliance on faith and spirituality. But it seems like we're using some of the same kinds of strategies and coronavirus responses around the world. What do you think, Edri? I mean, we're this social distancing, quarantine, I, I would argue that these are things that might have existed in, in the Middle Ages and we're still doing them now. Well, the best way to prevent transmission is basically to prevent contact between, you know, other people. You know, give them enough space. They won't be passing diseases with each other. Right. And the thing is, we often assume that just because it's the medieval period that, you know, people are ignorant about science or ignorant about medical science. But it's just that they didn't have the tools to understand the cause and effect of certain you know the, the pathogens they, they had no concept about pathogens about bacteria about life that exists on the microscopic level but they yeah. did understand that hey people in this in these cities were getting sick but people who haven't been there they're basically well because you know they they haven't nobody has traveled from from that place therefore there might be something to basically separating and isolating other people yeah and especially this, the sick ones yeah and this is this is the the whole concept of quarantine right it is yeah and i hope you don't mind i'm actually gonna tell a really quick story now about how the quarantine itself has roots in the venetian republic during the black death you might know this edry you've heard the story before i assume yes so i suppose we can we can quickly tell this story Although they didn't understand the contagion as we do today, Venetian officials figured out that the transmission of the disease has something to do with proximity. Consequently, they imposed a 30-day sequestration of any ships that came from plague-affected areas and docked in their port city of Ragusa, modern-day Dubrovnik. They referred to it as the Trentino. Nobody from the city was allowed to visit the ships during the period of isolation. And if they did, they too would be isolated for the mandatory 30 days. Other cities started to copy the Venetian law, and over the next 80 years, Marseille, Pisa, and other cities adopted similar measures. 
Within a century, cities extended the sequestration period from 30 to 40 days. The Trentino became the Quarantino, eventually being adopted in the English language as quarantine. So we have the Black Death to thank for our modern day conception of the quarantine. But for coronavirus cases, they self-delayed for 14 days, right, Edri? Yes, that is correct. That is because the longest documented period from what I've read from the time of possible infection to time that the symptoms manifested or the person got confirmed results through RT-PCR or your reverse transcriptase PCR test is 20 days. So they, they took that 20 days, which is the extreme longest time, and your usual five to seven days and just calculated it to 14 days from the time of possible infection to making sure that no symptoms develop and making sure that by the time it's over, you are not spreading the virus to other people. PCR, by the way, means polymerase chain reaction. So, yeah. Right. So 14 days, that's between 10 and 20 days. I suppose medieval Venetians could have called it the Diecintino from their word for 10 or Ventino from their word for 20. Uh, if they wanted to be really specific though, I guess it would be the Quator Dicentino from their word for 14. Uh, do you think any of those sound very catchy, Edri? No, <laughs> neither. <laughs> I, I agree. <laughs> so I guess we stick to quarantine even if technically it's wrong. All right. Yes. So. I think the other thing that's fashionable right now is social distancing, right, Edri? I wouldn't call it fashionable, <laughs> seeing how people act in the malls these days. Right. It's, but uh, it is fashionable to talk about, I suppose. Yes. Not and it's all, well, not to sound as weird, but uh, you know you know that video I, I made about how social distancing is basically an arm and the blade's length away from me. <laughs> yeah, that's how I talk about social distancing. Nice. Kind of, yeah, yes. <laughs> melee range, I believe. Melee range, yes. All right. Stay out so, of melee, melee range. Yes. And although I'm not going to claim that the social distancing that we experience today was invented during the Black Death, one of my favorite stories from the period was a kind of social distancing. Maybe you know this, Edri, but I hope you don't mind. I'm going to tell this story now. So the Black Death occurred during a period in the history of the Catholic Church known as the Babylonian Captivity when the papal court moved from Rome to the French city of Avignon. The name Babylonian captivity is a biblical reference to the Jewish captivity in Babylon after Judah was conquered in around 598 to 597 BCE. The Pope who reigned during the time of the Black Death was Clement VI. Like many theologians of the time, he attributed the plague to divine wrath. And like other learned people of the Middle Ages, he sought the advice of prominent physicians, which is good, and astronomers, maybe less good. And their advice, which actually turned out to be good, was to surround himself with flaming torches consistently. This actually worked not because of the magical properties of fire, but because the intense heat prevented the infected fleas from reaching his body, so he never contracted the disease. Now, I don't think you can get any more socially distanced than being surrounded by torches all the time. Yes, it kept away the fleas, but it probably kept away any people as well. Any thoughts about us trying that these days, Edri? You know what? I haven't heard of this story, but you know, 
<laughs> Instead of a blade, maybe I should keep, keep a lit torch. I mean, <laughs> with a blade, the security guards in malls aren't going to let me in. But, yeah. you know, I can always let the torch <laughs> stay away. <laughs> yeah, that would, that would definitely keep, well, it'll keep everyone away, I think. Yes. <laughs> the ultimate social distancing tool. All right, so let's talk about this other thing that I wrote down. Let's talk about PPE. That's another thing that's become commonplace these days, and I assume you wear this in your workplace. What's it feel like if you were to describe it in, you know, a word or a phrase? Suffocatingly hot. Oh, gosh. And, and you know, the isolation room where I do the swabbing, mm -hmm. it's already one of the colder places inside the hospital because it's in the basement. Yeah. And it has its own centralized air conditioning mm -hmm. compared to, say, the wards. In, and I work in a government hospital where yeah. it's still your usual Philippine temperature. Yikes. Yes. <laughs> feel, feel even worse for the people for who the, are... the nurses and the people who have to stay inside the PPE for yeah. an and... eight-hour shift. And they're moving. They're not, you know, standing yes. still, right? Yes. These people are yes. moving. Gosh. If I'm not mistaken, PPE includes face shield, respirator, gloves, and gown. Am I missing anything? You have your... Well, you have your actual bunny suit because um, ah. it, it started first with a surgical gown. And then the CDC revised its advice and said maybe not so much the surgical gown because mm -hmm. the surgical gown only covers up to like somewhere midway through your calves. So they recommended the use of the, the bunny suit. Oh, and, okay. and yes. And the surgical cap, or what other people would call a hairnet. Even right. with the bunny suit with its own hoodie, you, ha you still have to wear the surgical cap. So as an added layer of protection in case uh, there, there are particles in the air and they, they get caught in your, you know, in your hair. Wow. I, I never thought that there was still that additional layer underneath yes. the hood. My goodness. Oh, by the way, it's very tempting for a lot of people to actually, well, basically go commando inside the bunny suit with, with how hot it is. Yeah. But yeah, apparently your normal clothes are are still mandatory inside that bunny suit itself because they also still give an, another layer of protection. Wow. Gosh. Yes. So. That's that's around two, three, three layers maybe of clothing. Three, yeah, three layers with that underwear. Yeah. Oh my gosh. All right. Well, let's talk about the Middle Ages, shall we? Medieval physicians had their own PPE, as you and members of the audience probably know. It also had a gown and gloves like the PPE of the present, but I think that's where the similarities end. Instead of a face shield, they wore a very distinctive bird beak mask which was filled with sweet or strong-smelling substances, commonly lavender. The herbs were believed to keep away bad smells, known as miasma, which were thought to be the principal cause of the disease. Oh, and I shouldn't forget, they also had a badass stick for pointing at body parts, removing plague victims' clothing without touching them, and of course, in order to keep people away. Although I know what the answer is, I just have to ask Edri. Do you think medieval PPE could be of any use in our circumstances today? Well, the surprising answer is I am not going to say no automatically. I mean, oh. if these um, if these masks could keep out particles of 0.3 micron in size, why not? But then they didn't have that kind of technology 
thing. Yeah. But at the yeah. same time, there are people who have, you know, they've basically modified their own PPE. And let me show you what the PPE I've been using for the past few months, the modification I made. And I think you can see it right yes, now I on your it. screen. Yeah, I see yeah. it. Um, so if I could describe it for the audience. Okay, so it's a respirator, but it's tricked out because it's got a skull design on it. Edry, do you think that that would, you know, help at all with social distancing as well? Maybe scare people away? <laughs> well, you know, the, the PPE that the med medieval doctors had, that thing gave me nightmares for, for, uh, for, really? for months. Really? Yeah, when I first looked at it. Yeah? Uh, okay. Yeah, I, I went to some of the weird paranormal sites on the, the, the internet and I saw a picture of one and I'm like, damn, that is freaky. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So maybe it's worth wearing just for the scariness factor and just yes. to scare people away. That They will social distance from you. You don't yes. need to do any social distancing. I think another point of comparison worth discussing has to do with someone's socioeconomic status and how it determines how they are affected in a public health emergency. Today, we see that the wealthy have jobs where they can work remotely, and they have second homes that they can move to in order to avoid crowded cities. Edri, any, any thoughts on that? <laughs> well, I'll be honest. One of the things I love to do is to collect fountain pens. And okay. when my birthday passed, just two weeks, wait, three weeks into the uh, lockdown here, yeah. I bought myself one. Mm -hmm. And whenever I get a fountain pen, I always write a passage from something I read, usually a great work. Edgar Allan Poe is American, but he has a distinctly European flavor in his writing. Mm -hmm. And one of the things he wrote was The Mask of the Red Death, which was about how elites gathered themselves into a shelter, basically, while the rest of the country burned because of the Red Death, which was, you know, his take on the Black Death. Mm -hmm. And they were still continuing their opulent lifestyles. And then just as the story is about to end, it turns out that the Red Death personified was there amongst them. So they weren't spared from, from, from the problem. And we, we can also see that currently in our own system, in our own how the social economic status is basically going to be one of the biggest factors in, as to how countries are having a hard time dealing with the pandemic. We will note that those countries where there are serious gaps in equality, in social equalities, where the difference between the wealthy and the poor are so pronounced, these are usually the same countries that are having a hard time dealing with the pandemic. The reality is we have not raised, say, the minimum wage for most of our working class for almost two decades now. But for the wealthy, there have been constant increases in their wealth because of the rise in our, you know, our economy was um, doing well, okay, for the past 20 or, or so years. There, there has been an improvement, okay? And now all of a sudden, we have this sudden drop in our growth in our economy. The working class haven't had that kind of same fortune. So they have been forced to go out because they have a hand-to-mouth existence mm. okay you can't tell them to 
stay at home when yeah. they need to go outside because they need to go outside to work because they need something to eat. Yeah. Mm. And the, what what basically is happening now is there's they're outside and they're more likely to get the disease. And when they do get the disease, and then when it's the severe form of COVID-19 because of social inequities, they don't have the same outcomes as say somebody who can afford to stay in the intensive care unit of one mm-hmm. of the major medical centers in Metro Manila and get intubated or be put on mechanical ventilation for almost two weeks straight while the body tries to fight off the infection. Yeah, yeah. I suppose the disease reveals the extent of the inequality that exists in a society. I don't know if that's a positive note or not, but I suppose it's a point of improvement, something something for us to work towards. I think our comparisons are done. Apparently, whether it's the coronavirus or the Black Death, we can expect certain strategies to be effective, and we find that elites in society always have a better chance of weathering a pandemic. Now, I don't know if you know this, Edri, about the Eurospeak podcast, but normally, We have a quiz at the end of an episode to see whether the guest has learned something from the conversation. Given that you're more of a specialist than I am on this topic, though, I thought it might be worthwhile to change the format slightly. Instead of checking what facts you know, I thought I could try giving you some questions to which you can provide us with your most entertaining response. Should we give it a shot? Sure. All right. So here we go. Question number one. The bubonic plague that struck Europe in the 14th century has been called the Black Death. What colorful name do you think future historians should call what we're going through now? Weaponized disinformation plague. <laughs> <laughs> okay, cool. Uh, fair enough. Fake news death. Fake news death. <laughs> Fake news death. I'm going to be watching future historians, and if they call it that, I'm going to be calling you. <laughs> uh, second question. Would you support me wearing a plague doctor costume, not as PPE against the coronavirus, but to guarantee social distancing since I'll scare people away with my bird mask and staff? You know what? As long as you wear the proper surgical mask or the, the respirator underneath that bird mask, I'm good. All In right. Fact, <laughs> I'll join you, but like we, we'll be at blade's length away from each other. You bring your saber, I'll bring my, my knife. It's like, yeah, and then we're just going to scare people. (laughs) Stay away. I don't think anyone's going to approach us anywhere uh, if we're wearing that. (laughs) Question number three. I narrated the story of Pope Clement VI and his extreme social distancing measure of always being surrounded by burning torches. If you were to imagine a world leader doing something equivalent today, who would it be and what unusual thing would they do to ward away the disease? Oh my lord, this is such a loaded question. <laughs> this is this is what I fear that I'm going to hijack. <laughs> you talked about populism in one of your previous episodes. I did, right? yes. <laughs> and a lot of the countries that are not doing very well with the pandemic are the ones with populists. Mm. I'm not going to mention them because I still want to visit those countries in the yes. future. Yes. But notice that those countries, the leaders themselves, at least three of the leaders, have contracted COVID-19. Two of them, I know, have been intubated or mm-hmm. have been confined up to the point that they had to have someone else in charge for a while. Mm-hmm. And th- the problem is those world leaders actually didn't believe or tried to downplay 
the gravity of the situation. Mm-hmm. It's true. Yes, I agree. Yes. We're seeing a reversal because unlike, say, the Pope who was trying to distance himself from the masses mm-hmm. during that time out of fear, these people, they're pandering to their base mm-hmm. who are the most vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And when they pander to their base, they're doing the same, the same things that the same things that um, their base basically says that they don't believe in the pandemic or it's just us it's just like the, the flu yeah and they won't do what pope clement VI did yeah and that's why they're just going to get sick yeah they're not going to be able to ward away the disease right on the other hand mm-hmm. the ones where they did really well mm-hmm. in handling the pandemic Mm-hmm. I guess they they followed what Pope Clement the Sixth. Ironically, the ones that are doing well now are the ones that you know they 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 sort of uh, in the vein of Pope Clement the Sixth. They did. Yeah, uh, I guess uh, thinking medieval is the way to go. Yeah, <laughs> this, this this modern populism stuff is 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 deadly. We should all be a little more medieval, I suppose. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> back right. to the back to the aristocracy and the nobles. Indeed. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Let's go to the next question. Question number four: If the medieval elite were in their country homes, enjoying food, wine, and listening to music, what can you imagine the elites of today doing in their own homes? Oh, another loaded question. Well, for one, they'd be enjoying themselves in a controlled, climate-controlled environment. So, you know, air conditioning and all, since we live in a hot country. Remember, it's summer in most of the... Well, it was summer. Yeah, it was in summer. In most of the Northern Hemisphere during the... Yeah, the worst of the, the, the pandemic. I, yeah, a very comfortable environment. And they'd probably be binge-watching... Um, <laughs> streaming services uh, yeah. uh, television shows or uh, they'd be playing video games or for a lot of them enjoying food and wine I suppose yes they might be also doing that you know mm. their own opulent culinary pleasures gastronomic yes. pleasures and mm. maybe listening to music on vinyl oh yes, yes. or if they really want to be fancy listening to the Eurospeak podcast oh yeah <laughs> listening to, yeah listening to the podcast <laughs> Um, so thank you for your responses, Edri. I must say they were certainly entertaining. And if um, if future historians call this period the fake news death, you know <laughs> I'm going to be giving you a call about that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. So with that, I think we can end our little back and forth between the Middle Ages and today. I'd like to express my gratitude once again to Edri for joining us on this episode. I hope you had fun. Yes, very much so. (laughs) And to end, I leave you with the quote from the 1947 book, The Plague, by Albert Camus. He wrote, I have no idea what's awaiting me or what will happen when all this ends. For the moment, I know this. There are sick people and they need curing. Thank you to all of you for listening. And as they would say in the Middle Ages, fare thee well. Thank you so much for listening to the Eurospeak podcast. If you like what you heard, why not leave us a five-star review? And for more episodes, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. If you want to get in touch with us, our email address is contact.eurospeak at gmail.com. <laughs>